Welcome to the Renew Theology Podcast. I'm Emily. And I'm Bethany. We're two millennial women who enjoy discussing God's Word and how it applies to our lives. We believe in seeking to be rooted and established in the Word and allowing its truth to penetrate every area of our lives. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about context. Now, this is the other side of the coin from last episode where we talked about proof texting. So, proof texting is taking a verse out of its surrounding context and kind of using it for your own ideas rather than taking the ideas from the text itself or learning from the text itself. So, the thing that you can do to not proof text is learning how to read a verse in context. Um, so, we're going to be talking about context in the sense of literary context, historical context, cultural context, and then we're going to talk about how to do it or helps slash best practices. So if you have not listened to the proof texting episode, we highly recommend that you do that simply because it will give you some more background on these issues and we may be referencing some different points that we made in that episode as well. So if you're not entirely sure what proof texting is or why it's an issue, we recommend that you go back and listen to that episode and then come back and listen to this one. So I read a verse at the beginning of this last episode um, and I'm going to read the same one at the beginning of this episode. It's 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Um, And that last bit is what I'm going to focus on, rightly handling the word of truth. So the point about this is we want to be reading the Bible for what it is. It's a collection of writings inspired by God, not some giant fortune cookie slash advice box. I think I said this in the last episode. It's not a source of inspiration or a place to get cute Instagram captions or quotes. Yeah. And a lot of the time we treat it that way. And there are some of those verses in there. There absolutely are. But that's not the point of the Bible. No. The Bible spans about 3,000 years and it's written by, it's written by 40 different authors and there's different types of writing in the Bible. There is prophecy, there is poetry, there are letters that were written, and There are historical books as well. (laughs) So first I'm going to give you the dictionary definition of context. It is circumstances that form the setting for an event, statement, or idea, and in terms of how it can be fully understood and assessed. So this is important because when you're reading, you have to know why that verse is where it is. Most people know certain verses, like we talked about in the last episode, but they don't know the one that comes after them, and I don't really know the one that comes before them, mm-hmm. and that's important. I think it might be comparable to, to like if you're watching a movie, and I don't know if you've ever done this, but you know sometimes William will do this to me, or um, where I'll be watching a show. And he'll come home and I'm halfway through the show and he'll just like walk in and start watching it with me. And then, you know, he's been watching for 30 seconds. He's like, okay, wait, what's that person doing? And why is that person there? Yeah. And wait, so what's going on with those two people? And I get so frustrated. I'm like, if you haven't watched the whole thing, then you shouldn't be asking questions, you know. And or you take like 30 seconds and give him the really quick lowdown. Yeah, exactly. And he he needs that information because otherwise he doesn't understand what's going on. And I think when we sit down, we just, we're like, I am going to randomly open the Bible to a verse and that verse is going to speak to me and that's going to be my word from the Lord. You know, we we do this these sporadic little mini Bible studies without really taking the time to understand 
where this has come from and where it's going. Exactly. And then we end up being lost and confused and we miss out on a lot. Yeah. We don't read the Bible as a collection of writings from many different people, many different times, many different places, which that's what it is. Mm -hmm. So the first context we're going to talk about is literary context. Now, I might be bringing you back to a very dark time in your history. English class. Me personally? Well, just people. I loved English. So for some of you, maybe, English class was a very dark time for you. Um, There are... Here's the thing. When you were in English class, you learned to read different genres differently. So if I told you to read um, a poem, are you going to think that that poem actually happened, like, for sure, and every single thing it's telling you is, like, fact? Well, poetry often will take, like, one thing and describe it over and over in several different ways. Yeah. So poetry adds a lot of language extras. And it's not trying to be absolutely perfectly factually historically accurate no that's not the point of poetry the point of poetry is to convey emotions and circumstances right not historical data exactly so you're going to read poetry different from a narrative or like a story like a novel right you're going to read it differently from a historical account you're going to read shakespeare differently than a history textbook yeah or a math textbook for that matter because it's like telling you what to do or, or like an essay. So the point is that when we read these things differently, we know to read them differently. But these things exist in like these different genres. They exist in the Bible too. And you mm-hmm. have to know what which one the one you're, that you're reading is. So there are literary forms in the Bible. We've got narrative, which is story. Law, which is kind of like the first five books of the Bible. Um, poetry. We have the wisdom books, we have prophecy, the gospels, we have letters, and we have history. So here's maybe an example of where we're coming from. Well, you, you've probably heard where you like read a proverb a day, right? Sure. So my family did that after dinner for a while. And it's really neat because you kind of just get the snapshot of, hey, here's stuff about life. And you may have like heard some of them and gone, okay, yeah, but I've not seen that. Like maybe the ones where the the righteous are rewarded and the and a fool is not rewarded, right? But we've all seen times where the fool is rewarded. Mm-hmm. This is because proverbs are generalities, general principles of life. So someone's kind of watched life go on and said, "This is what normally happens." They're not hard, hard and fast promises. I think when I realized that. I was like, that makes so much more sense. I know. Because so many people are, they quote Proverbs as if it's a personal promise to them. And Proverbs are not promises. Like, Proverbs are like, this is how I have observed the earth usually works. Exactly. This is how people usually interact with each other. Yeah. If this does, if if this situation happens, this is probably going to be the outcome. It's not. It will always be. So here's an example. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. If this was a promise from God, what would be the outcome? You would not have kids who are raised in solid Christian homes leaving the church. Exactly. After college. No one would. No. No child who was raised in a Christian home would ever, like, would ever not become a Christian. It's not a promise from God. No. It's generally kids who are raised in, in good homes and who are taught the truth and that, of course, in th- we're talking about in Solomon's time, maybe kids who are raised in good, solid Jewish homes 
generally turned out turn out well. They stick yep. close to what their values are. Yeah. So it's a principle. Going back to the English English class, you may remember the term literary device. So a literary device is just a way of describing something or using phrasing or wording in a way to get their point across. So common literary devices in the Bible are metaphors, allusions, hyperbole, irony, foreshadowing. Now you can probably pick out a couple passages or verses that might kind of mix with these. Hyperbole, maybe. Like when David's like, I am near death! And you're like, yeah, you got a cold. Exaggeration, basically. Yep, exactly. That's what hyperbole is. These are things that the Bible uses. So foreshadowing. That might be where Jesus is like, hey, disciples, I'm going to die. And then three days later, I'm going to rise. Now, that is extremely blatant foreshadowing. Yeah, I would call that prophecy. Well, yes. I mean, he's kind of like, yo, guys, this is what's up. This is what's coming. Mm -hmm. I'm giving you the forecast. Um, So the really important thing about literary devices is that they are all over the Bible. Um, I'm going to recommend a another resource for you right now. It is called The Bible Project. Now, if you've never heard of The Bible Project, they're a really awesome um, not-for-profit animation studio that does videos about the Bible. Um, so they do some really awesome videos talking about the actual, like the text of the Bible and reading it as ancient literature. And you can check out their videos about poetry. They have some about prophecy, I think. They have videos on just about everything, but they're going to really help you to understand how the ancient biblical writers were using these different literary devices, how to spot it in your own Bible, and how to tie it all in. Okay, so our next one is historical context. Now, this is huge because we live now in 2019, the 21st century, which is way different from 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago if we're talking about the earliest um, books that were written in the Bible. Okay, so the reason why historically historical context is important is because the times and places are important. When you're reading something in the Bible, is it from the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Jacob, is it from the time of the judges? Is it from the time of the kings or from the time of the exiles? Is it in the New Testament, which is when Jesus comes? Um, what's going on at that period in history? That's important. I think historical context is something to easily miss because I think a lot of the time when we're reading the Bible, historical context is something we assume a lot of the time. So there are parts of the Bible that are chronological and other parts that are not. So for example, like Genesis came before Exodus. Like we know that, right? So when we're reading through the Bible, like it all it all flows. But then you get to say, like we were just talking this Sunday at church about Judges and Ruth. And, you know, we started out Ruth by uh, the leader of our of our study saying that Ruth happened during the time of the Judges. And actually quite early in the book of Judges. Right. But that's something that is so easy to miss. Like, it's so easy to just read the book of Judges because Ruth comes right after and it's easy to just assume that Ruth occurred after Judges. Yeah. But just because it's placed in that order in the Bible doesn't mean it actually occurred in that order. And there are Bible plans out there that 
will guide you through reading the book chronologically uh, in a year or or whatever. Um, but that's something that I definitely easily miss. It's something I don't even think about, like I because I don't even know to look for it. Yeah, you know. Well, then then you get into like high school or college and you hear about oh this is the Bronze Age, this is the Iron Age in history, and you're like okay well, but I never read about that in, that in the Bible. Um, how does how does that fit? Right. Um, and I think it's important to be able to trace it through and know kind of what was going on. Not terribly important. Like, don't focus all your energy on this. But just having a good idea of what's going on in the rest of the world. So, talking about Paul, he wrote many of the books in our New Testament. He was a Roman. Now, a lot of the times when we're reading, he's like, and I want to be brought to someone of a higher authority and the Jews couldn't do anything about him because he was a Roman. He was afforded certain privileges. Now, this that's a historical thing. If you were a Roman citizen, you had privileges that maybe just the Jewish people didn't. Luxuries like rights to a fair trial. Yeah. You know, things we take for granted every day. No big deal. Yeah. So that, that's important to know that. That makes the biblical text make more sense. So that's historical. It's a little shorter but most of that you can go and learn yourself. It doesn't really have to be explained by us. So next up, we have cultural context. Now, Bethany, I understand a little bit of this. I mean, I think some of it, you know, we hear cultural context and it's kind of obvious. It's like, well, yeah, obviously, like, personally, I'm not Jewish. So I'm going to, like, I know that the Bible is primarily about, it's well, it's a Jewish text, right? Yeah. It's, it's been written primarily by Jewish people. So for me, there's going to be certain things where I'm going to be like, okay, well, obviously, like, some things just stand out to me, like the fact that um, they were commanded to not eat pork, okay? Like, I I grew up in North America, specifically Canada, and pork has, you know, been a pretty regular dietary item for me. Like, I've never, you know, but so when I read the Bible, something that stands out to me is the fact that, like, they weren't supposed to eat pork, and to me, that's a little bit weird because it's different from how I've been raised Um, so I realize that's a difference, right? But then there are, I think, other differences, cultural differences that are a lot more nuanced. And we actually make assumptions based on our culture that are completely opposite. Yes. In the Bible. So you may remember from last episode that Emily shared a book called Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes by Brandon J. O'Brien and E. Randolph Richards. This is a book that I brought home from school um, and I read through it this summer, so I can recommend it because I think it's pretty good. It's a little bit of a heavier read. It's not just like a um, like scale through it. You have to really think about it and, and consider what each like what they're trying to say is, and I still don't understand all of it, but it really opened my eyes to how living in the North American culture, how it's so completely different from the ancient Middle Eastern culture. Yeah, I'm still reading that book. I'm only a few chapters in, and already there are things where I'm like, whoa, I, I never knew that. Yeah, so something I was reading about in that book was racism. <laughs> uh, it's really interesting how in North America, our experience with racism colors when we read racism in the bible and it we read it through this filter the example the authors give in in this book is when miriam and aaron disapproved of moses's wife because she was a cushite if you look up the country of cush on a bible atlas um you'll see that it was in the southern nile valley and this is where um you had very dark-skinned africans living 
And so through my Western filter, I'm going to read that and go, okay, well, since she was black, they must have assumed that he was marrying beneath himself. And that's why they disapproved of her. Right. That's not the case. In fact, they it's likely that they disapproved of his wife because Moses was actually marrying up because she was a dark-skinned African. You got to remember that he married her um, while he was a Hebrew and while the Hebrews were enslaved by the Egyptians. So in this context, at this point in history, the Hebrews were the slave race. And Cushites were actually known for being great warriors. And so they disapproved of Moses because they thought he was being presumptuous. They were kind of like, oh, like, you think you're so great. Like, you have this, like, nice wife and, you know, you're chosen by God. And, you know, they, they were jealous of of him and they just thought he was being a little too high and mighty. Um, so that's an example where, you know, and, and you'll even look at commentaries, right, where this is assumed, you know, commentaries from 100, 200 years ago when racism was was even more rampant in the United States and Canada than it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have Bible scholars saying, oh, well, obviously, they disapproved because she was black. It's like, well, no, like, you can't say that about something that occurred 3,000 years ago. Like, y- y- that wasn't the case. So I might get into some hot water here, and that's okay. The idea of people with darker skin or Africans or black people being somehow lesser or being like a slave race, that idea was not actually perpetuated in mindset, wasn't perpetuated and believed until about 350, 400 years ago. Mm. Like it's it's a very recent thing in history. And in fact, going back, say like the Roman Empire, we were talking about like Mediterranean people, they enslaved everybody else. Like the Britons were their slaves, the Gauls were their slaves. Like, Mm. the Hebrews, like, the Jewish people were obviously their slaves. Like, they're they're Germanic people. So, the idea of slavery is not limited to what we believe it is to be because we have the past 350 years in our head. Right. We we limit ourselves when we think of only our cultural history. Right. So, are there any other examples um, or things that we should know about cultural context when we're reading the bible absolutely um i actually think that examples are going to be more helpful than just more general discussion in this case so um certain things tend to jump out at you when you read from a different perspective so if you're reading from the perspective of a middle eastern person um there's just things that are different so the the, couple examples the first one is the story of the prodigal the prodigal son so at the very end when the prodigal's coming back the father runs out to meet him now we think, oh yeah, no big deal. Like dad's run, it's it's okay. No, <laughs> in the Middle Eastern culture, fathers running is completely undignified. Old men never went faster than a walk. It was like not not cool. So this completely changes the story hmm. <clears throat> because not only is this father welcoming back his wayward, absolutely awful son. He is turning himself into the laughingstock of the town, doing something that's completely unheard of in this culture, totally undignified, and it adds weight to the story. Now, if you don't know that, you might not catch the significance of it, and I think it's important. And I think, too, it's important to note that without knowing that, it doesn't mean that you don't get anything out of the story. Right. But for me, this is super helpful because it means that I can take my 
biblical knowledge and therefore faith to a deeper level. Yes. Knowing that, right? Like, without knowing that, I, I read the prodigal, the story of the prodigal son, and I get like, okay, yes, I can always go back to the Lord and he loves me. Like, that's the basic principle I get out of it. But then knowing that, it just... He runs out to meet you. Yeah. He does undignified things to come and get you. He's not going to wait for you to come groveling on the floor, like, looking down at you. He's mm-hmm. happy that you're there and he loves you. Yeah. And Jesus suffered complete humiliation on the cross out of love for me. Yeah. Right? He did. He was completely undignified. The lowest of the low. Exactly. And when I can draw that parallel, it makes that story just mean even more to me. Yeah. Yep. Um, now, my second example is Ruth. So, if you know the story of Ruth, it's pretty pretty short. You can read it um, in like half an hour. So, the concept of a kinsman redeemer is brought up in this story. And we don't understand this because it's a little weird. Um, it's very, It's both historically and culturally specific to the Middle East in this sense. So, say if a family had two sons... And the oldest son got married, um, and but before he could have children with his wife, he died. The other son would be responsible for marrying his brother's widow and having a child, a son, with his widow so that that child could carry on the name um, and the title and inherit the, have the inheritance of his dead brother. That's what a kinsman redeemer is. And isn't that also what we see in the new testament when the sadducees challenge jesus with this they say okay there's like this there's seven brothers and the oldest one gets married and he dies and then so the next one marries her and then he dies without any kids and the next one marries her until this woman has married all seven of these brothers which one is she going to be married to in heaven and of course their goal is to challenge jesus and kind of stump him and and test his knowledge but jesus in the end just makes them all look like idiots by saying don't you know anything like there's not going to be any such thing as marriage and the resurrection. So, point for Jesus. <laughs> but this was obviously something that was culturally known. Like, this yep. was your responsibility. This is what you do. Because it's so important to have sons and to have them carry on the family name and keep the property, the land in the family, especially being the promised land, um, like promised by God to the people, it's important, very important for them. The The worst thing would be dying out, having no heirs, and having your land be given on to other people and your name lost forever. So when you understand this historical and cultural practice, the whole story makes way more sense because you're like, why is she marrying this dude? Why Why does this make sense? How, how does this make it? Why do they put the baby in Naomi's lap? It's because the baby is not really a replacement, but kind of a replacement for her dead son to carry on the name. Right. That baby is going to carry on the lineage that she had completely lost when her two sons died. Yep. And then her husband died, so she couldn't even have more kids. Exactly. She was, that was going to be the end of it. And yet God brings in this whole amazing plan when things look hopeless and that has so much significance to it. Yeah. And I think the idea of a kinsman redeemer, a family redeemer, like Christ is our redeemer. Mm. Christ is the one that has come in and taking us, taken us up out of our sin and our death and brought us to eternal life. That's what he's done. He's restored us. And he is God's son. Yeah. And then because he has redeemed us, 
we are now a part of God's family. Yep. Everything is a picture in, in the Bible. And it, I, like this is something that's new to me just now when we're recording this podcast. Um, and it's so enriching and exciting. So when you understand that and you start looking for it other places, it pops up. The next example is, um, this is more of like a historical one as well. So in the New Testament, Jesus is mislabeled as a zealot. He's accused of being a zealot. So this term zealot, rather than just being another term for like an enthusiast, um, this was a religiously zealous political group who violently opposed the Roman rule in Judea. So this is a serious accusation. You're thinking like um, the mafia, Right now. So they're accusing Jesus of being this violent political character when he was anything but. Um, and then we have Simon the Zealot, who is one of, like, one of his disciples, which that is significant. And I think for me, a good illustration of this is when Paul says, you know, if I, if, if you think you have any reason to be pure before God, I have a better one. And he goes through his list of qualifications for why he was the a Jew among Jews. A Jew among Jews. I was a Pharisee among Pharisees. If anybody had zeal, I had it. And that always stood out to me because what did Paul do before his conversion when he was still Saul? He he terrorized Christians. He went into their homes, he dragged them out, and he had them stoned. Yep. And he started killed, riots about these beaten. people. So that's what I think of when I think of zealot. Yeah. So it, it's not only being an enthusiast or like an over-enthusiast. It is, it's an actual group from back in, in the first century. Um, so that, that to me is something historical. So next we're looking at helps slash best practices. So if you're going to be reading a passage and you're going to be studying it or spending some time in it, we would like you to ask some questions about the passage. Who is the author? What is the author's background? Who is the audience? Who are they writing to? Which book is this in? Which testament is it in? What is the placement in the passage? Is it by something else? Like another story? Why is it by that other story? Um, look at the surrounding passages. Look at the genre. Is it a poet book of poetry? Is it a wisdom book? Is it a historical book? Um, and then place it in history. So questions like this. You're trying to put this verse or this passage in its context to be able to understand it better. Do you have any resources that you would recommend for that? I know um, we both really like the Bible Project because yep. they're great at, at sort of offering an overview of different themes or books or characters in the Bible. Yeah. Um, but if somebody's just opening their Bible and they just want to know something, um, what are just a couple of quick places they can go to find out more information? That's a great question. Um, so you can read commentaries. If you're going to be spending like time in a passage and you want to understand it better, there's lots of commentaries you can look up. The Matthew Henry commentary is pretty common um, for the whole Bible. There's different book-specific commentaries. The Matthew Henry commentary, by the way, you can, there's a free app you can download. Yeah. Um, you can look at Bible atlases to help you with geography. So an atlas is obviously a book showing about maps and, and everything to do with geography. Um, you can research archaeological finds or facts associated with the place or time. Um, I take, I took biblical archaeology in university and it blew my mind. <laughs> 
Um, so looking up these actual things that have been dug up in Israel and looking at different ruins, that can be extremely helpful. Um, and then maybe just how close to something something was. So you can also look at special studies, so like on the book or the topic. So I've read books on the Holy Spirit, um, the Holy Spirit's work in the New Testament, or or other things. So that's that's really good too. Do you have any that you wanted to share? So a recent lesson I've learned regarding context um, has to do with the story of feeding the 5,000 found in Matthew chapter 14. And this was actually a sermon I listened to um, by Tim Mackey, who's one of the co-founders of the Bible Project. Um, but he did this sermon on on Matthew chapter 14. In this chapter, it starts out by telling the story of the death of John the Baptist. And it, it concludes um, with the feeding of the 5,000 and then Jesus walking on water. Now, um, I think a lot of the time it's really easy. You know, our Bibles have these super handy um, headings at the beginning of paragraphs. A lot of the time we kind of give us a brief description of what's going on and what this section will be about. And it's really easy to separate that in our minds. Um, so I'm just going to read this brief passage um, from Matthew chapter 14. I'm going to start at verse 10. So speaking of Herod, he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, that would be uh, Herod's niece, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw the crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And then it goes on to say how... Um, the disciples, um, the day was getting late. The disciples sit, said to Jesus, you know, send them away so that they can get food. And Jesus said, well, you feed them. And, and we know the rest of the story there um, with the, the loaves and fish. Now, something that struck me in this sermon um, by Tim Mackey was Jesus is told about the death of John the Baptist. Now, to me, John the Baptist was, was Jesus' partner in ministry. John the Baptist understood who Jesus was and exactly what he was doing. And John had proclaimed Jesus before he started his ministry. He had baptized Jesus. And then, you know, he continued to just send people to Jesus and proclaim that he was the Lamb of God there to take away the sins of the world. And so when when John the Baptist is beheaded, I think Jesus, he's he's struck by grief. And he decides, and he needs time to himself. And so his response is to withdraw from the crowds. He needs some, he needs some time, you know? And so he, he has a plan to, to go across the water and, uh, and just spend some time alone. But when he gets to the other side, there's this crowd of people and they all have needs and they want to be healed. And, you know, Jesus is grieving and his response is not to say, all right, like, let's find somewhere else to go. But his response instead is to minister to these people and to heal them and reach out to them. Now, the thing to remember here is that Jesus is fully human. Like, he's experiencing this real grief. You know, it's not like it's any less real to him because he's also fully God. But he is fully human in this moment. 
And to me, that just reveals so much about the character of Jesus and how much he loves us, that he can be suffering and still reach out to these people who he loves. You know, like these were not close friends of his. These were not like family members wanting to be healed. You know, this this was a crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children. And they all wanted something from Jesus. And he reaches out to them and he gives and doesn't get anything back in the midst of his suffering and pain. And that was so significant to me. Um, simply because I, in listening to this sermon, realized that these two events happened back to back. There wasn't like, you know, a month or a week or even a few days in between these. It was like, no, Jesus heard this and his immediate response was to cross the water to have time alone. And he didn't get that time alone. Um, but he still reached out and loved those around him. So that's a way that really understanding the context in which something is written has encouraged me and ministered to me. So another book that I have is called Grasping God's Word, and it's by Duval and Hayes. Those are the last names of the authors. It's one of my textbooks, and it really walks you through this is how to do an inductive Bible study, where you're going deep into the passage. You're learning how to read within context. You're learning how to do word studies, how to read phrase by phrase, how to re- read in different tra- different translations, how to read different genres. And um, through that class that I took on, on Bible study, I went through Isaiah chapter 53. Um, and it totally blew my mind. Like I have such a great appreciation for that chapter. And it's so special to me because I've done the research on it. I've done the study. I've talked about it with other people in my class and in my group and it was really helpful. So if you're looking for something to walk you through step by step and to give you advice and help, um, this is the book I would suggest. Great. Well, those definitely some good resources um, to check out for sure. So our email, if you're interested in contacting us, is renewtheology at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram um, at renewtheology. If you enjoyed this podcast, give us a rating so that others can find us more easily. And uh, that would just be a great encouragement to us too. So So thanks for listening and uh, we'll chat with you next time. Bye.